welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and whose cheese it is, in fact, okay to move. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. I have a fear of internal combustion engines. <laughs> Today on the show, we're talking with Christina Noren, Chief Product Officer at CloudBees. Hi, Christina. Welcome. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kendall. Good to have you on the show. So we'll dive right in, Christina. Our, our first question we always ask is, were you born chief product officer at CloudBees or did you somehow work up to this? And can you tell us that story? Uh, maybe the answer is neither. I don't know. I don't know if I've worked up to it either. It's um, been a windy road, I bet. It's been a very windy road and you've, you've traveled a little bit of it with me, Rachel. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I, you know, I've been in software through the back door for 26 years now. Um, I took an accounting job at a software company at age 18 in order to save money to uh, go to fashion school after having gotten an art degree and a business degree very young. And I never intended to stay in software. And uh, here I am 26 years later. Stuck in it. Uh, Choice. (laughs) At least, you know... uh... I don't know. I feel like there's got to be a lot of parallels from fashion to software. Am, am I close there, on there that? Are, or not really? yeah, I mean, there, there are. And I think the, the main thing for me about, you know, the, the intuitive path I've followed is I like doing things for makers and doers. And I like a world in which a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff gets created. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't really ever become a serious fashion designer. I did practice as a as an exhibiting visual artist uh, for the first few years of software, and I ended up spending more of my non techno you know enterprise software time in my life on visual art than fashion, as it turned out. And I you know I joked that I make money um, creating enterprise software platforms, and then I go lose it doing art art tech <laughs> platforms. But they're both kind of about the same thing for me, which is using software and technology to get everything out of the way of the people who are makers and doers and amplify their, their capabilities. And, you know, CloudBees, that's for software developers. Um, you know, it's Splunk where I spent seven years uh, running product and stealth for IPO and Rachel, you were with, with me there. Mm-hmm. It was for sysadmins. Um, our platforms have been about artists, not about the dealers or gallerists. And that's kind of where I gravitate. Cool. Okay. Well, flesh flesh a little bit more out of that. Like uh, we want to dig a little bit just into your history and how you got here. Can you can you give us some color around, you know, significant promotions or uh, wonderful places you worked, terrible places you worked, mm-hmm. whatever is more amusing yeah. to tell, I guess. So I started my career at a comp- at a long forgotten company called Sonic Solutions. Um, that was an audio workstation company that was the audio spin out of Lucasfilm that was the sibling to um, Pixar being the better, the better known brand name video spin out. And I got there when I was a few years old already, and they were getting ready for um, external financing and on the way to an IPO. And they did all of the um, audio editing, you know, CD pre-mastering platforms for, um, you know, big music studios and, and, and so forth. Um, and so I found myself around musician engineers. Um, the guy who ran, um, hardware engineering was Paul Alyoshin, who went on to 
design the first generation iPhone from a hardware perspective. And unfortunately, it's since passed. And I just got seduced by the people I was working around. I didn't know anything about their domain or about software, really. I mean, I first touched a computer, you know, in 1984 in New Zealand when I was 10 years old. So I'd had my hands on on computers, but not in a serious way. Um, but but uh, what, what happened there was there was no wait, one... Wait, wait. I have to stop you for just a second. Did did you grow up in New Zealand or did you fly to New Zealand, interact with a computer at 10 and come home? <laughs> I was there for 10 months with family. So most of my distributed Dutch farm family ended up in New Zealand. That's okay. 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 Sorry. Keep going. But that's that you, you yeah. sort of slipped that in and I was, I had lots of questions about that. Keep going. There's a very meandering path, but anyway, but back to Sonic. So what happened at Sonic was I took that accounting job with the task that really needed to be done was to get our business systems in some way, shape or form that we could be ready to be a public company. So I found myself um, running sales operations and building my own inventory forecasting, sales forecasting, whatever systems with like 4GL tools at the time. And then I was also running a lot of processes and starting to manage people from a very young age. And they just, you know, and I just took all the stuff that wasn't the cool, you know, creative tech stuff to do, but was the sort of facilitating stuff. And I learned and, you know, three years into it, I still hadn't quit and you know, taken the money I'd saved to go to fashion school. So I kind of figured I was, you know, in software for good. Um, and the company had gone public. I also um, was given some tasks to do what I didn't know was called product management at the time. But we had to pivot out of audio because of forces in that market um, that was making it more low end and the rise of digital design and pro tools and stuff like that. And so I... Um, I ended up helping research a bunch of new markets and and uh, ideas for new products based on our core technology um, because I had more of a you know business analytics research background from what I'd done and what I'd done in school um, than the sort of audio folks that were you know had the title product management. So yeah. I just you know I just did whatever was in front of me and so then a, a, a sales director who was also pretty young, but it was a rising star there and a little further along in his career, um, called me and said, I shouldn't be doing this. And he eventually became CEO of that company. Um, but uh, he said, I shouldn't be doing this, but you're talented and you should stay in software and you should probably work somewhere else than here and, I've heard, you know, and get some other experience. And some recruiters have been calling me about this company, Portal Software, um, that that was a 10-year-old internet service provider that had pivoted and gotten Series A funding to do a bill, an ISP billing platform. And they need smart people. And I'm really happy here. This is right for me. But, you know, I wouldn't be your friend if I didn't tell you about this. So I went there. And did and, you feel like that was a friendly? I mean, it sounds like it was great <laughs> advice. No, it was great advice. And, and Hab and I still talk to this day. I keep, you know, I keep people close throughout my career and mm-hmm. he's gone on to great things and, you know, around the company. It was, you know, it was very friendly and it was very much like he wanted, you know, he wanted me to see what, what my talents were in another context. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I went to Portal and I was hired as a business development analyst because they had similar problems to what Sonic had had. They'd just gotten funding to do ISP rating and billing and AOL went to uh, went to $19.99 a month flat rate. So there was no market for what they had built. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so we had to go find other areas that would need that kind of rating and billing. So I did that for a little while. 
And it meant I had to go along to partners and demo the product. And there was a sales engineering team that had been hired, but they weren't very, you know, they weren't very modern in their technical skills because they'd come out of traditional telco. So I just learned and I learned to give better demos and I learned the technology inside out. You know, that's where I taught myself some light programming and Unix and so forth, because previously I just really used 4GL tools. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then they made me head of sales engineering. Um, Boom! And, <laughs> and you know, they gave me all these 40 something year olds out of the telco to go do something with. Oh. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I. And I drove the, and the other thing is I was always just doing lots of things beyond my job. I think that's the biggest thing. And that's why I like small companies to build young people's careers. You know, Sonic was 30 people when I joined and public when I left. Um, Portal was 20 people when I joined and went public a year after I left and was a few hundred people when I left. And in those roles, you can really do lots of things and do anything. And so even though my job was business development analyst and then running sales engineering, um, I had more of an accounting background, so it was a billing platform, so I drove a lot of the requirements for the technology. Um, we didn't have anybody to do. Um, our part-time CFO um, was also part-time CFO for VeriSign, and she left to take the full-time job at VeriSign, a woman who's become quite famous since Dana Evans. So she handed me the financial forecast, and I managed the financial forecasting um, model for the, you know, because no one else could do it. Trial by right? fire, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, the early career was that. So I'll just I'll fast forward a little bit. So I spent a couple of years at Portal. Portal eventually went, you know, went public. It's now, you know, it's, it was bought by Oracle later, and it, you know, its product Infranet lives on as the as still one of the top telco billing platforms in the world. Um, and I followed the product to Microsoft. And, you know, I, it, it turned into a multi-million dollar sale, um, the largest sale we'd done. Um, it was months of process. I got to know the team within MSN um, that was, you know, trying to figure out at Microsoft, which it was a packaged software company, how to do services. And the funny part is a lot of the themes that lived on through my life at Splunk and my life, life at Cloudbees now were things that were just starting to form 97 to 99 when I was at Microsoft. So I ended up um, being hired way above my level of seniority. And my third job was at Microsoft. As, I was hired as a, as, a, um, as a group manager for MSN online operations. And that meant quite a few different things over those two years. Um, you know, a lot of it was we were you know, carving online operations out of IT much as large companies today are going through digital transformations and nuking their IT departments in favor of having software development organizations. Mm -hmm. And they're learning, you know, software development organizations are doing DevOps and learning to do ops. These were all themes that were starting to form back then. And we were in the thick of it. So I just did a lot of odd projects and then they ended up giving me the, um, the team that was supposed to <clears throat> develop, integrate and run um, monitoring, logging and we we had this idea that log data could give us interesting executive dashboards and troubleshooting platforms for the different software developers in in MSN. Sounds very and familiar. That sounds a lot like like what those of you who know Splunk. Um, I've heard people like dashboards mm -hmm. on their monitoring. Exactly. Exactly. So um you know, and so that was what I did the last, and that was the first time I managed software engineers. So 
you know, I'm absolutely not a software engineer by training nor a professional software engineer in any way. Um, but they, you know, I did end up with a small group of software engineers and a software engineering manager, as well as a pro, you know, a program management team and a, and a test team. So, you know, it, I had about 15, 20 people and I was 23 years oh old. Oh my gosh. What was, what was the <laughs> hardest thing about that? Like what, what were the big lessons you got in that two year period? Do you think? Well, I did everything wrong. <laughs> um, you know, I think one of the things I remember a boss of mine at that time telling me was that someone in my role should get hands-on in any way with the technologies they're responsible for. And they shouldn't do the technology, but they should do a lot of side projects, and that should just be a big part of their life. That would, Later, I, I took that to heart, and I did that. But um, I didn't get that back then. And so it, it brought a certain distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, you know, some other just, you know, just lessons learned of just the, um, the interesting tensions with teams like that, that are essentially shared service teams that have some development capacity internally, but also buy a lot of products from the outside. Uh-huh. Um I don't know if that was a lesson in management so much as a lesson in that particular business dynamic that served me well later on running product management for for product companies that sold into such teams. Oh, like the build versus buy decision making process. Exactly, build versus buy and the subtle, you know, the subtle dynamics of, you know, engineers really, you know, having a bit of NIH mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and software and what does it feels like to have software vendor come in and pitch you so, in that situation? So can you talk a little bit about that? What, what, uh, what did you learn and what can, what can we, you know, what can our listeners learn from you about this process and how to, how to navigate it best? Yeah. I think some, I think some of it really manifested in, you know, in, in choices that we, that we made at Splunk later, which is, um, you know, a lot of the preference for open source and teams like that is less about open source. And I'm saying something almost heretical right right now, <laughs> but more, but more about, but more about, you know, what someone said to me at a customer recently of the sense of owning your tools and people like, you know, at that time, the products we bought, the Tivoli's and the HP open views and, you know, the like, they were horrible. You know, and they were completely inflexible and there was no way. So if you didn't like them, you had no choice but to build something else. And then you have this tension versus something that is highly configurable, flexible, extensible, you know, that you can hackable and um, that it does something out of the box. But if you don't like something, you can change it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, taking that angle and understanding that, for you know, tools meant for practitioners and systems meant for practitioners, they have to have that quality where you kind of can make it your own. It's like, you know, what makes a house a home? It's you know, you get you customize it, you 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 make it you make it your mm-hmm. own. Would you consider this this uh, two years at MSN to be your first real quote leadership role, or do you think you? Yeah, I manage people from probably my yeah, from my. Uh, uh, fifth month of working on <laughs> I've managed people. So um, what about, no. and what about product? Were you, were, where were you yeah, learning that for the first? I didn't officially, I mean, program management at Microsoft in the, especially in those days was a lot of product management. And there were a lot of internal training courses that we were encouraged to take that I took some of, 
in those days that effectively were product management training courses. Um, I took a pragmatic marketing course um, back in my portal days because I was getting involved with that. So that is effectively a form of product management training. And so I learned the whole, you know, core pragmatic marketing model in 1996, mm-hmm. um, which was about three years into my career. So, um, you know, it's so along the way, I think um, I didn't, def- the, the, the truth is I didn't have a product management title until I became a VP of product management. I, the dirty secret is I've never been a working product. <laughs> well, Whoa, you definitely had a lot of on the job experience. You heard it here first, folks. Oh, and um, thing. Um, so yeah, but, from, from there. But in small companies, as a VP of product management, especially when you when you don't hire well in your first few hires, you're a working product manager. Yeah. And that's such a hard role to hire for. I mean, it can come from anywhere, right? That the, the people who are good yeah. at it, sometimes you just have to let them figure out or fail to see whether it's going to work. Well, it's also pretty well known that I that I I I prefer product managers, uh, partially from my own background, you know, with field engineering background, to ones with pure business or. Um, uh, pure business or marketing or software engineering backgrounds. There are always great exceptions and I've had great exceptions, mm-hmm. but you know, that you know, if somewhere along the lines and that's what I did, you know, so just to fast forward a little bit from, you know, from Microsoft uh, um, while I was at Microsoft, which was not, a, it was not a pleasant time in Microsoft. I'd never worked in such a large company. I, I was doing better in retrospect. And I think this is another thing I would just want to offer people listening to this is I was always doing better than I actually mm-hmm. thought I was early on. And it's just it. And I, I take, um, you know, criticism very deeply to heart. And, you know, it's, it's very easy when you're in these kinds of ambiguous situations to think you're failing in mm-hmm. place. And then I, one of the things I've learned to do is go back and reprocess my past and learn more from what I didn't realize I was learning at the time. Oh, wow. And I do, I do that a lot. Like I take long walks. I'm, you know, I'm an introvert. I, you know, my form of meditation is to walk for very long periods of times. And I think, and I think in a very, in a very structured way. And I often set myself to, okay, well, I'm reminded of this past situation. Let me, let me replay what I, what I didn't realize I recorded and what can I learn from my own experience that I didn't learn at the time. Yeah, that's, so I, I mean, I was just talking with a friend yesterday who's like really wrestling with some imposter syndrome stuff. And uh, it's interesting just to think about, you know, I, I was trying to encourage them, like, I actually think you're really doing a kick-ass job at this. Uh, you know, you're unable to see it because all you're, you're focusing on is your failures, but it's a, it's a very interesting exercise to look back at, you know, what did I learn in that time, even though at the time I felt like I wasn't succeeding or I was barely scraping by or whatever that is. It's like, it's a practical discipline you're sort of offering to look back and recover a little bit from that. Yes. And I think there are things that managers can do for people that was, that were not done for me at the time that I've learned to do over the years. And I'll, I'll probably get to that, but it's, but, um, you know, I'm dealing with, with, you know, quite a lot of that on the team, um, you know, on my team right now at all, you know, at all levels. And um, the people who are most concerned that they are underperforming are in many cases, the people that I'm valuing the most and seeing and seeing doing the best work in diff- difficult circumstances and taking on the hard challenges. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I try totally to give them that. better feedback than I used to, um, you know, as Rachel knows, it's, <laughs> 
been a practice for me to learn how to give positive rather than just constructive feedback. I got some great constructive feedback from you. You pushed me really hard and I <laughs> yeah. super appreciated it. I mean, maybe not in the moment, sure. but... <laughs> But on that point, you know, uh, a CEO we both worked under, you know, Godfrey Sullivan gave me, it was a great gift, gave me the nucleus of a 360 base, a very precise and highly manual, highly qualitative 360 based review process um, that's based on a few simple email questions and, you know, in a very deliberate way of compiling the results anonymously and a process for how to take people through it. And he took me through it. I took Rachel and others through it, and I've taken probably, you know, several hundred people through it since then. Mm-hmm. And it has, and and I've propagated through through my teams, and it's just starting to propagate around at CloudBees. And universally, whether it's a hard one, you know, hard review, or a you're doing better than you think review, or whatever, this ritual, which I've made very central, I have a bunch of them to do this weekend. Um, this ritual has really changed the way that I've done um, performance management on my teams and it's affected real change and it's helped people go through real growth and in many cases overcome that imposter syndrome. There's nothing like seeing it in black and white. When your boss writes something in black and white of you're doing great in XYZ, yeah, whatever, they're manipulating me. Mm-hmm. You're, you see that they're quoting and you can tell it's not their their verbal, you know, their written style. They're clearly quoting colleagues and you can kind of maybe tell who the colleagues are, maybe not because of the way they're writing, but it's so clear that this is how you're seen. And often it's, you're being seen for things that you think are going unnoticed or don't even realize you're doing great. Yeah. Yourself. And that does take some investment from the other folks on the team too, right? It has to be a top down, we care about this and you're going to spend some time giving quality feedback to your colleagues, right? You, you have to have that or this doesn't work. And, I, and I'm really against a lot of the contemporary performance management systems, and I, I've done away with even the vestiges of ratings in, the, in that system that I inherited from Godfrey because it's not the helpful part mm-hmm. of it. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things around continuous feedback, and we're testing some tools that are you know, more about pulse and employees. But, I, but the, you know, the um, and structured, I don't, I'm not a big fan of, you know, uh, in many areas, I'm a big fan of a lot of structure in this kind of area, you know, a very light touch on structure works and the investment of doing it in emails and manually and having people write long form is it, it helps make the organization healthier. Yeah, we've had some discussions on past episodes about like being able to work with people who are better verbally versus in written form to get their feedback and like have them pair up with someone maybe to get it written down, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Uh, to make sure everyone yeah. is from you know on a base that's the same. Well, I will say that like so right now at CloudBees, just to you know be clear on what my role is today. So I I manage um, you know 150-ish uh, people across 15 countries uh, that encompasses engineering, product management, product marketing, design, documentation is growing rapidly from there. Um, wow. it's my first time in such a massively distributed team. I've had like the remote office in, you know, in Asia before, but I haven't had this kind of crazy distributed team, um, for a product organization, not a sales organization. Um, many people like me work from their, you know, work from their homes when we're not traveling. Um, and I will say that even though actually English is a second language for almost, you know, probably more than half of my organization, probably much more than half. Um, 
people's degree of written communication is better than almost any organization I've been in. And part of it is because we, you know, I walked into an organization that had to write things down because of the asynchronous nature. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's the culture. And I'm, I'm a very um, happy writer. I like writing a lot of stuff and I write, I think I write okay for a, for a non-professional <laughs> writer. Um, yes, definitely. But, but uh, you know, but but this but this company has pushed that more, and it's actually one of the joys of doing this job is people have people ha- make the investment and have the patience to you know to both produce and consume deeply consume um, a large volume of, of written information. And what I've heard is that some of the culture at Amazon, like it's it's writing not you know long form writing not slides because you can't hide as much as you can in slides. <laughs> and- I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. That, I mean, we, I I work for a fully distributed company as well, Christina, and and the the mm-hmm. yeah the need to communicate well in written form is is uh, a very specific you know it's essential to our success. And um, it's interesting. Sometimes we will disqualify someone in the application process if they can't write a coherent email, you know, but um, Mm -hmm. can you talk for a minute about like, you know, what is unique to the leadership struggles of a person running a product organization versus, uh, you know, something else, sales or or the other thing. Folks that run specifically engineering. uh, So it would be interesting. Yeah, please do. Well, I think, you know, uh, I think the challenge with running, you know, both product management and engineering and the related functions of product marketing and design and docs and so forth is each of these, you know, each of these functions have their own kind of, you know, way of seeing the world and way, way of going about things. And there are, you know, I've mostly been running the product management side of my career, but this is not the first time I've had chunks of engineering. It's the first time I've had this much engineering. Um, you know, I find that things have shifted a little bit for me, having, you know, more e- even responsibility of both. But, you know, when I, when I look at things from a product management mindset, there's a certain set of, you know, canonical frustrations with, you know, with engineering. When I look at things from an engineering mindset, there's a certain kind, you know, kind of you know, canonical frustrations with product management. And again, this is one where I've gone and reprocessed my own past and, you know, finally in my own head understood what people were trying to tell me and say Splunk Engineering when I was VP of product management early on and what their frustrations with me with me were. And I see some of those now and I'm kind of refereeing both sides of this. Um and everybody's trying to do the same thing, but they come at it from such different places. So the, you know, the challenge is how do you really bring people together? And, you know, and, and they're, and they're kind of, and this is why I was joking with, you know, with colleagues about the title of this podcast I was about to go, you know, go do today, authority issues, because what we all kind of have in common in these roles is a lot of us have authority <laughs> issues. Yep. <Yeah. laughs> And we're creative people and we can do an amazing amount of stuff on our own. And a lot of us have, you know, creative outlets and side projects and so forth, but the coming together and collaborating, um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard work to come together as a team and it's hard work as a leader to lead without telling. And it's, it's so easy to fall back on mm-hmm. telling. And so, you know, when there's a lot of change and people are uncertain, they're, 
you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, people, you know, on the one hand complaining that there, there's ambiguity and not clarity from leadership, but then also complaining that they don't have enough autonomy and authority. And I think finding that balance for, you know, a large team of these different functions coming together to do what's in essence creative work, but creative work with a, you know, with a purpose of a particular kind of, you know, problem you're trying to solve and business you're trying to build. Um, you know, these are these are different things than running the same size organization that's, you know, that that's selling something, you know, or marketing mm-hmm. something. Yeah, or or engineering something specific. But yeah, um... yeah. or just engineering and <clears throat> yeah. And I think, you know, breaking down those silos and you know, we're making a transition as many companies do from I think technology-led on one side and sales-led on the other to product-led, which is why they've, you know, they've got a product management person like me running the product organization, including engineering. But that's not meant to diminish the value of engineering. It's meant, it's meant to say all these roles are coming together and have an equal part in building a cohesive product that is really something you know, something the market Yeah, and the goal being so, like making users awesome rather than build this thing that has been specced kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, so I think one of the things that I told when I interviewed at Splunk, um, the, you know, twelve people in the company, and they stuck six of them in a conference room to gang interview <laughs> me when it was supposed to be an informational interview, and that was basically my only interview. Um, and they grilled me as a group, and I, I, I thought I was just coming for a coffee with the CEO, and that's what they did to me. Um, Brilliant. And, and they. Um, and I later realized that Michael's not somebody you come you come to have coffee with. Um, <laughs> never that casual. But you know, they asked me, uh, Rob, one of the co-founders, asked me, "What you asked, like, what's your what's your definition of product management?" And I, you know, I said, uh, I said it's you know it's the art it's the art of characterizing prop you know the most lucrative problems that the company's you know in a position to solve in such a way that engineers are excited about solving them and deeply understand them and what gets delivered can actually be sold you know it's something like that and it's pretty probably pretty close to what my answer was back then and it's, and it's still very mm-hmm. true um and uh you know that's tough and i often have not lived up to that myself because that you know that getting engineers excited about it um, it's really easy to skip. To yeah, skip and that's over a that. big part of the the leadership versus just telling, right? It's you've got to you've got to bring them with you. They have to learn. Yeah. So you, you talked a little bit about you know the, the the authority issues that you you know that you experience with other people who have strong opinions and strong backgrounds in what they're doing. What do you feel like your relationship with authority is? Did you how do you feel about people having authority over you, and how do you feel about <laughs> having authority over people? Yeah, it's it's tough because, you know, from a personal philosophical standpoint, I I don't believe in any kind of inherited authority or privilege. And I know kind of where you're nudging me, <laughs> Rachel. Um, Ooh, uh, there's, it's there's, fairly there's, well, there's baggage here. This is exciting. Sorry, keep it's going. Fairly, it's fairly well known that politically <laughs> I am a very serious anarchist of a definition that um, is, mm-hmm. is not the socialist variety that I really, really do believe that, that, you know, in the, in a, in a principle of equal value, um, amongst Mm -hmm. people, um, you know, I don't believe that any kind of geography or, uh, you know, or inheritance or heritage or whatever, you know, 
you know, puts you in any position of legitimate authority, that all authority is learned, all submission to authority is voluntary. Mm-hmm. But I also believe that organizations of people do need structure and leadership and authority. And I do believe in true in true leadership and in, in the authority that's necessary to make that happen um, for organizations to work. But I think those organizations need to be very voluntary. Yeah. So, so if you work in an organization under me, I'm expecting that you are respecting my authority. And if I unearn or fail to earn that respect, you have a choice to leave. And, and one of the things is that unfortunately in our you know, present global situation, economic situation and so forth, not everybody has the right. same level of freedom to leave. So that, that complicates matters totally. a little bit. But I'm very conscious of that. And, you know, what's very frustrating to me is where, you know, people act in this sort of, like you mentioned authority issues of not strong-willed, not being able to work for people. It's the opposite as well. There's kind of learned helplessness and victim attitudes and so forth, which is, you know, I, I manage in a very strong way because I respect my people as people. And I, I, I accord them the respect of believing that they, that they can and will speak up and challenge my authority if it deserves to be mm-hmm. challenged. Do you, so, and, so what is what is uh, leading strongly in that context mean? Like, because you are you're talking about earning their trust, and I think when you say leading strongly, I hear I tell people what to do in a firm way, and I'm I don't think that's what you're saying. No, it's not at all what I it's not at all what I mean. I I'm very I try to be I try to be very clear about our very real circumstances and the current thesis that I represent of, of leadership about how we are going to transcend those circumstances and, the, and, and what we're asking people to accomplish and why and how we think we're going to accomplish it. I try to be as clear as possible and I try to be as clear as possible about where it's just not working, where a team is not forming or where what's being produced is not enough. And that's not about the people being good enough. It's, it's just like, literally, we cannot survive as an organization if this piece is not coming together Reality. in this way. And I have a belief that it's because you have a shortcoming that, you know, that, um, that needs airing and it's something that you can work on if you have a behavior that can change, if you have, um, you know, if you have some beliefs that need to be challenged. I mean, as, as soon as those become clear, I'm going to be very direct, you know, with you about it. And, um, and it's in the spirit of I want us to succeed and organizations don't survive if they don't thrive and, and you know, get results together. And it's my job to help to help guide to results. I try not to do that by telling because I don't have the scale to tell 150 people what to do. I just don't. Some of those folks sometimes expect me to do that. I can't do it. I don't know enough. And, um, you know, there's far more expertise throughout the rest of the organization, but I do have a sense of how to make the moving parts of an organization come together to get something done in the overall market context and the thesis, and that's and it's my job to make that happen. And I can be very, very wrong, but I, you know, but it is my job to point the way. And so when I say you know strongly, I, you know, I I don't have any problem um, telling somebody when I think they're not succeeding and why it is I think 
um, that's making them not succeed, whether it's them or something around them and having frank, hard conversations. And I don't have a problem making deep changes when they need to be made. And I do believe that that is healthy, usually for all the people involved, even if temporarily that can, that can be really hard. So, and I wasn't always that way, but it's, I, I really like every time I go through tough situations, I realize that that's, um, that when I hesitate or other leaders in my organization hesitate, mm-hmm. we're doing yeah, yeah. Yeah. So to say that back to you and, and tell me if I'm still wrong, in which case I'll stop trying to <laughs> communicate this back to you. But, uh, <laughs> I think, um, like, so what I'm hearing there is you're, you're setting context, but you're also, you're not going to sugarcoat the problems. And so that is, you know, if somebody comes to you with a solution and you think it's an insufficient solution, you're going to be upfront about that. And it's, it's just that continual setting of context. But the, the strong leadership is you're not willing to set context in a rosy way. You're going to share the reality and people need to be, you know, and, yeah. and, and you know, probably help people yeah. solve that. But yeah. am I yeah. characterizing that appropriately? Yeah. And, I, and then you ask, exactly. And then you asked me another question. Is there, there's two parts of the question, which is mm-hmm. how do I deal with authority? Yeah. Um, so not always the easiest, the easiest, but it, it really does more and more come down to, um, do I trust in the wisdom of the person that I am working for? Do I trust in their motivations? Do I believe that that they're leading an organization in a mission that I, you know, in a mission with a vision that I can get behind and believe and and believe in them. And do I trust, you know, do I trust their process? And it also like my, my ability to follow the CEO I work for, and I haven't worked for anybody but a CEO for many, many years, my ability to follow us, follow a CEO also comes down to do they, um, what are the peers that they put around me and do I really respect the peers that mm-hmm. are around me and do I respect the fairness of the CEO and the, and the, and the, the, um, and that CEO's ability to effectively lead and form that team. And, you know, and I, I've, and every CEO I've worked for has had great qualities that I've, that I've learned from. Um, some have been easier relationships than others. Um, you know, and, yeah, the, the the further I go, and the more you know, you know, the more the more that I have to show for it, the more choice I have sure, in that yeah. respect. And I really made a big, you know, and I'll I'll put a plug in for my current CEO, Sasha Labore. He is an incredibly wise CEO, and it is a joy to work for him, even when there's some tough stuff going on. And there's, you know, your CEO is always going to bring, you know, he does the same to me as I just said I do to other people. Like, you know, he will, you know, he will bring to light when, when he thinks I'm not seeing something that's not, you know, that's not working and affecting my organization's success. And we can have some tough conversations, but, um, you know, I'm working for somebody who's wise and I, I deeply respect the, um, the skills and the intellect of of the peers that I have in the organization and I think the organization structure is a right organization structure, and and he's got, and Sasha's got a clear idea of how, of how these big moving parts are supposed to work mm-hmm. together. So um, that makes it a much easier place to then, if a decision is not the one that I would want, to voice my disagreements mm-hmm. and then commit. Um, yeah. But when those conditions are not present, um, you know, I definitely, I definitely have quit. Um, or, you know, or, 
you know, left in some white jobs where I was having trouble with the authority that I had to follow. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you have a different relationship with authority now than you did when you were a kid? Mm, that's a much deeper one. Okay. Maybe I will answer that. So my father died when I was very young and he ran a huge sales division um, at Xerox. He managed 800 people. And then he lost everything before, um, before I was born. And um, I was the daughter of his second trophy, trophy wife that um, had, was never could follow authority and never had any responsibility because she was just one, you know, she was one of these people who just doesn't understand us. And I grew up after he died. Um, I basically was one of those kids who had to be the parent. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, and the combination of I had the inspiration of my father's leadership and then spent most of my, you know, later childhood years having to be the parent. Mm-hmm. Um, the combination of those it probably is a very direct contributor to the type of career I've ended up having. I, I can totally see that. Yeah, it makes makes sense. So, yeah. um, well, then let us move on to a slightly lighter topic. Uh, yeah. uh, you talked a little bit yeah. about, you know, uh, your your background in art and in, in design and in fashion. What, what are your what are your current hobbies outside of work? Increasingly, I don't really love that word hobby. I'm not a yeah. hobby type okay. person. I'm, I'm too serious. Like I'm a, I'm, I'm a deeply serious person, mm-hmm. you know. And um, that for me does not in any way mean that I that I think I'm at all a dull person. But it's you, me you don't that, dabble. I believe I, exactly. <laughs> if I start getting involved in something, you know, I was I was talking to someone at a dinner last night about it's like it, it, I have to believe that it's somehow the system of the world. You know, so, you know, so I deeply believe at CloudBees that we are, we are building the nucleus of how you're going to run a software centered business in, in the, in the future that will be um, more important than the CRM or the ERP and will be, you know, the way work gets organized. And that's one of the most powerful missions you can have. Um, the, you know, if, if I were to talk to you about the art platforms that I keep building and not getting, not getting done and have, and coming back to I will tell you the same things about that. So, you know, I love going to the opera. I love, you know, the opera I'm loving more and more. The older I get, the more realistic opera seems. Oh, yes. Yes, totally. <laughs> I, you mean, my wait, 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 what does that mean? Like the more of life seems like it's in a language you don't understand? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that too. Um, oh, great. Now we have a car alarm going out. Of, oh, no. uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think we can really hear it. Yeah, but anyway, so they, so, and I, you know, on the art front, I'm more interested in collecting art and, and, um, you know, and following, in following my own evolving art tastes and in the course of doing so, supporting, you know, supporting emerging artists. And, um, you know, I, I still love fashion and design. I love, you know, beautiful things. And I, mm-hmm. I read a ton. I read everything I, you know, at almost every waking moment, I'm actively, you know, seriously thinking, reading, or communicating with people. And yeah, I love you don't it. you don't seem to do a lot of relaxing. So, if if money were no object, I was about to say, uh, what you would do with your life is first thing you would do is turn off that car alarm, which you apparently just did. Uh, if money were no object, what would you do with your life? Would would things dramatically change? Well, I think that's you know that's the thing is like at what level is money no object? Because mm-hmm. when you have serious passions involved building things that involve lots of people, you go kind of get in the cycle where 
you know, you make enough money at one thing, you don't have to look at price tags at Barney's and you can buy, you buy yourself pretty things and live in a nice place. And then you kind of, you know, it's, that gets boring and you start, you know, you start thinking about ideas and then you start building a company to go build those ideas and you find yourself putting your own money into it and then you find yourself needing to work to go, you know, not have to look at the price tags at Barney's again. <laughs> a big cycle. Them. And then to go to work for somebody like me, you have to find something that can be a, you know, can be a many years passion, like Swamp was, for example, mm-hmm. or, you know, or this is shaping up to be. Yeah. And then you get enough money, you know, to not look at price tags and then you start working on the passion project again. And then you realize that you don't really want to ask for any VC for the passion project. So, you know, I, I want you know, I want to make CloudBees so wildly successful that one of the side effects of it, besides it being good, good in and of itself, is to give me the resources to do another run at one of these art tech platforms. <laughs> Yay! It's just a cycle. And it's like, and I, I love doing it. And it's like when it relaxing for me is walking around thinking. Mm-hmm. Thinking, or making your plan. Talking to a, to a smart person, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, that's, this is relaxing for me. Like we're having a conversation about things I care about and it's causing me to think on the fly in different ways about those things. Yeah, I love that about this it's, show too. <laughs> it, it's impressive to me that we, we have not yet had anyone say in response to the if money were no object, what would you do question, start collecting private jets. Like it seems like there's some really easy answer that's that that somebody should have but but everyone's like yeah. well i find life pretty interesting and complicated and would probably keep doing something interesting and complicated yeah. so totally. i mean i do spend that's... more time with small companies these days and with people trying to get stuff out i, I try to spend time with people who are passionate about making their ideas real and do everything i can to help them make their ideas real and help me make my ideas real i mean that's fun yeah, it's a it's a great exchange of of thoughts and ideas, as well. You can just continue to get engaged, and I love that. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, we're coming up on the hour yeah. here. Uh, one last question: Where can people find you on the internet? Um, I'm mostly known by my initials everywhere: C F R L N. That's C as in cat, F as in Frank, R as in Richard, L as in Lucy, and. And is a Nancy, um, and I am CFRLN on Twitter. I'm CFRLN at Cloudbees, and if you see a CFRLN on any other internet platform, it's probably me. Cool. We will put that in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks so much, Christina. This has been fun. This was it has great. been lots of fun. Okay. Great to catch up. Yes, always. Have a good day. Okay. <laughs>